Um, my name is Chris Causey. I am so glad that you are here today. I am um, grateful that you've chosen to be here for this Mother's Day. And um, one of the things that I think is unique about Mother's Day is uh, we were, my daughter Ella and I were shopping for Mother's Day cards this week, and um, we were kind of going through all the different cards. And one of the things that stood out was how Mother's Day cards um, seem to have a central theme that you don't find in like Father's Day cards, right? Father's Day cards, it's like, thanks for being goofy, silly, crazy, you know, like my advent, like my like co-conspirator in crime. I mean, like the Father's Day themes are pretty broad, but there seems to be this kind of central Mother's Day celebration, which is this like selflessness of mom's love, the sacrifice that mom makes. And these funny kind of videos kind of illustrate that really well, that long before your spouse knew how weird and quirky and demanding you were, your mom knew it, right? Long before the weirdness of who you are was revealed to the world, your mom had already figured it out and loved you anyway. When you were ungrateful, screaming, yelling, throwing, poo, and doing all that you did, she loved you. She'll keep loving you and keep investing in you even after you keep doing all those things for 25 years before you finally move out of the house. We celebrate moms. And it's an interesting thing to me to, to think about what we praise today on Mother's Day. And I think it tells us a little bit about our culture that um, we tend to value um, certain aspects and character traits um, about mothers that actually gives us a glimpse of what we don't like in other, um, other kind of character traits with people. In fact, there's a dirty word that sometimes gets thrown out um, called narcissist, right? And I came across this comic that said the narcissist test. It was like, step one, take a moment to think about yourself. Step two, if you made it this far, you're not a narcissist, right? But to call someone a narcissist, to call someone self-centered is, is a really like low dig and insult. So we have this spectrum, this kind of two extremes. We have the selflessness that we celebrate, that we praise today, and we have the self-centeredness that's the very opposite of that. But I think if we're people who are going to be followers of Jesus, then we have to get past it being this binary to you're either selfish or you're not, and realize that there is a spectrum, and that as people who follow Christ, we need to always be moving towards the selflessness and away from the self-centeredness. And the reason I know this is a problem for us is not just that we praise it on Mother's Day. Um, it, even a recent study I came across this week illustrated it really well, that they were interviewing people and trying to get a sense for what do people think about other people in their lives right now. And the most interesting stat that came out of the study was that almost 50% of people said that the best person they knew in their friend group was themselves. So 50% of the people polled said that the best person that they know, they see every day in the mirror. That's a problem. Either you're picking really bad friends and you need help, or maybe your friends wouldn't share that opinion about you. And so how do we intentionally, as people, especially as people 
um, who are maybe joining us online today or in the room who want to follow Jesus and who are Christ followers. And to answer that question of how do we move towards selflessness, not self-centeredness, not selfishness, I want to take you to one of the only two miracles recorded in all four of the biographical accounts of the life of Jesus. So if you're ever on Jeopardy, I'm just giving you a question that you don't have to give me all the money that you get. Just send me a little bit. But there are only two miracles in the four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus that are in all four. You could be tempted to say, well, that seems a little strange. Why doesn't the four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus have a lot of the same details in it? Well, it's because Jesus did so much in such a short time that when the writers began to write and reflect and unpack who he was in his life, there was enough miracles that all four of them could talk about something different. But each one of them intentionally chose two to highlight. That's the only two scattered throughout. I want to look at both of them today because I think they have a lot to do. They have a lot to teach us. But specifically, the one I want to look at is found in John who is the fourth biographical writer of the life of Jesus. You have to realize John's a little bit of a different book. If you've ever kind of perused or read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John reads differently than the first three. The reason why is the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written shortly after Jesus' resurrection. They were early, the earliest letters that were circulating because the, the followers of Jesus really wanted people to know who Jesus was. So they put those three down pretty quickly. John was the youngest of all Jesus' followers. He was essentially the, the little brother of Jesus. He had the kind of that special little brother relationship with Jesus. And, and because he was the youngest, he died the last of the 12. And when John is surveying Christianity towards the end of his life, because he lived into his 80s and 90s, extraordinarily old for that generation, for that time frame, John's looking, and John has a unique position Every one of the three writers wrote to the first generation of Christians. They were the first people to have ever been Christians ever because Jesus inaugurates it, right? Well, John is looking at Christianity, and it's no longer a generation of first-generation people. These are now the children and the grandchildren of people who've grown up in Christianity, who've grown up going to church. And so John is looking at the first three accounts and says, you know what, there's some things that this generation needs that's different than what the first generation needed. It's like if you're a parent, you think you're really good with the first child, you've got the playbook, you know the details, you understand children, and then the second one shows up and you throw out the first playbook because you realize the second one needs a whole set of different things from you. If they're going to be a fully functioning adult that moves out of your house at some point, Right? And this, this whole journey towards this is exactly what John's trying to do. He's like, my kids, the, the current Christian generation needs a whole set. And for John, I am eternally grateful because John gives us a detail that none of the other writers about this moment gives us. And in John 6, we see this whole moment ushered in. When Jesus looked up and he saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Because the moment that we're about to walk through is what will be kind of known as the feeding of the 5,000 throughout history. It's a misnomer because it's actually a feeding of about 25,000 people. And so Jesus has observed this huge crowd that's been following him, and Jesus has compassion on him. And Jesus, knowing what he's 
about to do. He has three years to prepare these 12 disciples for what he's going to lead them into. He leans over to Philip, who's one of the 12, and he says, where shall we buy bread for these people? And it says that Jesus asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Now, Jesus isn't setting Philip up to make him fail a test. This is more of one of those tests because what Jesus really wants to help Philip do is grow and expand and, and kind of reformat the way he thinks about who God is and what God can do. So he's asking them this question to set Philip up for this breakthrough that Philip's about to have. And this is actually, I think, one of the first things you and I need to realize about those difficult, self-centered people that show up in our lives. Some of them may be your children. Some of them may be your spouse. Some of them may be the people you work for, or some may be the people you serve. Um, Howard Schultz, uh, who is, wrote a book on the Ritz-Carlton, um, commented how there's a 2% jerk factor. No matter what industry you're in, there's always going to be at least 2% of them who are jerks. So if you're in an office and you look around and there's no other jerks in the office, statistically speaking, you're probably the jerk, okay? Because 2% pretty much holds across the board. No matter what socioeconomic demographic group you're part of, 2% jerk factor. And what Philip is about to experience, what Philip sees as an obstacle in Jesus' question, Jesus sees as an opportunity to help him grow. And if you and I are going to move towards selflessness, then I think we have to begin to see those people who we think are obstacles to us being better people are actually opportunities for us to become better people, to be opportunities to practice. Because I don't know about you, but selfish, self-centered people make me mad. Those people who only can see it their way and their way or the highway, they make me want to punch them in love, of course, right? I mean... But what if they're opportunities, not obstacles, for us to, to grow and to strengthen in our faith? And this is what Jesus is essentially doing. This moment is not an obstacle to Philip's faith. It is an opportunity for his faith to grow. So Philip answers him with the calculation of an accountant that's really impressive. He says, well, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Now, here's the thing you need to realize. This was not... They did not speak English in the first century. Okay? They're not speaking English to one another. We are reading it in English, which is a translation of what the text was written in originally. John originally wrote this in a language of the day. And in the language of the day, what this is translated from, there's actually a, some details in this section that's really important. One of them is that it is not more than half a year's wages. Philip actually says to Jesus, Jesus, it would take 200 denaria to give these people a bite. A denaria was how much the average worker made in the course of a day. So Philip has sat there, looked at the people, and estimated to give these people appetizers, it would take about eight months' salary to give them an appetizer. So he's done the math. He knows what he's talking about. There is a confidence and Philip's is like, Jesus, I don't know if eight months' budget is worth the appetizers. I just don't think that's wise. But then you have someone else who's sitting there who's been listening in 
And it's another one of the disciples, Andrew, who's Simon Peter's brother, who's like completely opposite of Simon Peter, who was impetuous and always kind of talking a better game than what he could actually do. Andrew's a little bit quieter, a little bit more reflective. And he says, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. So Andrew's like, hey, I am... Um, Philip's over there doing math on an Excel document. I kind of took a walk, and Jesus, I, there's a small boy who overheard the conversation, and he's willing to give you his lunchbox. He's, he's willing to give you this. But what we can miss in this conversation is this sentence right here is trying to draw out something that we can miss. It says here is a boy, but it's actually not. It's here's a small boy like an elementary age kid who's got his Minecraft lunchbox. Like he's ready. And when I saw this kid, because clearly he had a good mama who packed his lunch that day, all these other fools, they ain't bring no food with them, but that boy's mom took care of him. And that kid walks up to Jesus and says, Jesus, you can have what I have. And that it can be lost on us in this century, what John was doing. But he says, well, he had some small barley loaves. So he had his little bread. And then he had two small fish. And here's the two small fish. It's pickled fish. Mm-hmm, yummy, right? So good. This is pickled fish, which is what you would give to put on barley bread. And if you notice, a small boy with small loaves and small fish. As if John's wanting to make the point, everything about this kid and his moment and what he has to offer is small. And we can miss it. Like in our day, you hear barley bread like this. We pay money for barley bread because that sounds healthy. That sounds like it grew up out of the ground. Somebody slapped it up and put it on a piece of bread and... So we go to Whole Foods and we'll drop money for it. But in that day, in that age, if you saw someone with barley bread, you didn't have to ask the question. You knew they were poor. Because barley bread was the bread that the poor ate in the day. So here is a poor small boy with just some small bread and small fish. And he walks up to Jesus and he says to Jesus, here you go. Here's what I have. Take it. And I think what illustrates, what helps us, I don't think that we all walk around thinking, man, I'm super, I'm going to be super self-centered and selfish. I think one of the things that gets in the way is that we start to think, well, all I got is this. Right? And the number of people who've said to me, I would be more generous if I made more money. If I had more time, I would, I'd volunteer more. If I had more room in my house, I would be a little bit more hospitable. And there's because I think we're really good at generating excuses, and we make the mistake of doing what Philip did, which was to focus on what we don't have and allow that to disqualify us. Instead, instead of, like that little boy, looking at what we do have and letting it qualify us, which I think is a really important question for you and me. What's in your lunchbox? What is it that you have right now in this season of life? 
Maybe if you're an elementary kid, maybe it's literally what's in your lunchbox. And maybe there's a kid at your school that doesn't have the resources that you have at home. And so maybe there are moments for you to share. But it's bigger than that. Proverbially, what's in your lunchbox? And I'm not just talking about the good things. I'm, I'm talking about the grief that you've walked through too. The pain that you've navigated. The life skills that you've acquired. The passions that you have. The insight that you have. Maybe for some of you, it's the ability as a, a teenager or an elementary age kid, maybe what's in your lunchbox proverbially is your ability to walk across the playground and to start a game that can pull in other kids that would normally never be pulled into any kind of conversation. Maybe what's in your lunchbox is to create an atmosphere where people can feel included, not excluded. And that's what you have. Or maybe for some of you, you're in a, a stage of life, you've got an empty room, you've got financial margin, and maybe it's foster parenting. Maybe what's in your lunchbox is an empty house and a deep passion to have kids. And maybe it's adoption. That we all have something in our lunchbox. We all have a life experience. We all have, we all have things that we have with us. Yes, there's a lot of things we don't have. But every one of us has something that we do. And what Jesus was asking Philip that day and what that little boy understood was I have something to offer to him. And you do too. And this question is a question worth reflecting on. If we're going to be people who don't just praise selflessness during Mother's Day, but actually practice it every day, then we have to realize that God has put some things in our hands. Maybe it's your ability to sing. Maybe it's your ability to smile and make people feel better. Maybe it's your brain and your intelligence and your hard work ethic. But you have something. And what's amazing is when you take what you have and you offer it to him, he can do something extraordinary through it. Right? Jesus said, have the people sit down. He takes the lunchbox and he says, okay. And it says there was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. That's why it's called the five feeding of the 5,000. But it wasn't just men. It were families, right? Hence the little boy with his lunchbox. So it's about 25,000 people that are gathered that day. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed it to those who were seated as much as they wanted. Philip was concerned about giving them a bite. Jesus gives them a buffet. It's like, Jesus, can I have some more of that pickled fish? Mm-mm-mm. And it's like, yep, we got more pickled fish to go around. And I'm just saying, I'm not ever going to be called eating pickled fish. But if Jesus is serving pickled fish, that might be pickled fish I would try. And they had this amazing amount of food to the point that when it is done, they had enough to eat. He says to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves that were left over that who had been by those who had eaten. So what starts out as a lunchbox being offered to Jesus, that limited supply, this is all I got, God. What happens is that lunchbox becomes 12 basketfuls. And here's the thing for you and me, what, why the question of the lunchbox is so essential is that you and I do not know what hangs in the balance of us extending to God our lunchbox. You don't know the lives that can be changed. You don't know the impact that you have. You don't know 
the way that you could alter the course of someone's career by being willing to invest some of your time and mentor that young person coming into this field with your background and your experience. You don't know what you could offer to someone who's walking into a foster care as you and your ability to provide a home for them. You don't know what your generosity and the little bit you have put into the hands of God can unleash. You and I never know what hangs in the balance. But if I were to sit down with you and I were to ask you stories about your spiritual journey, who's impacted you the most, what's made the difference, it probably happened with someone extending their lunchbox to you. Them saying, this is all the time I have. This is all the talent I have. This is all the ability I have. This is all that I can do. And yet God takes what they offer to you and does something extraordinary through it. You and I never know what hangs in the balance of us extending the lunchbox into the hands of God. And that you don't know until you offer it. You don't know until you decide, I'm going to start moving towards selflessness and sacrifice and away from focusing on what I don't have. I mean, imagine the swagger of that little boy going home that day with his empty lunchbox. How was the day? That today was awesome. My lunchbox is empty. I ate really good. I so did 25,000 other people. And for the rest of his life, he could tell the story about a lunchbox and how God turned it into a buffet for 25,000 people. Imagine how it shaped his faith, not just fed, all those people. Because here's the secret. Most of our lives, at the end of the day, we're in a happiness pursuit. And oftentimes what guides us to make self-centered, selfish decisions is we want to be happy. And we think that if we give up what we got, we're giving away our chance for happiness. And yet the genius of God is that when we give up what we got, we get so much more back in return. There are people in this room, there are people outside of this room who invest in small kids at this church when we could do church regularly. And they gave up an hour, and you can ask them that what they got in return was so much more than the impact of an hour. Because for generations, these kids are going to understand who God is. We don't do child care at this church. Someone's like, oh, well, we do child care in the baby room. I'm like, no, we don't. We get to be a group of people who get to take small babies and infants and we get to sing over them. We get to pray over them. We get to introduce them to the name of Jesus, which is the most powerful name in the entire universe. We are a force to be reckoned with. We don't do child care. We unlock potential. We introduce people to the God who made them, formed them, crafted them for a purpose so that they can move towards that purpose. That's not child care. That's cultivation. That's farming. That's building people. And when we offer to God what we have, he does so much more through it. And and in the end, that little boy, his faith was strengthened and food was served. So what's in your lunchbox? What's the little bit that you have that you could give to God? I think one of the practical things that you can do is start giving your time that you have to something, whether it's mentoring or 
tutoring. There's a whole generation about to step in to the next 10 years of being academically thwarted and kind of hindered by what this pandemic served up. My heart breaks for kids who are in first, second, third grade who are already academically in a position where they were already vulnerable. And the way this thing could take them into some really hard places of life in the next 10, 15 years. Maybe it's just investing for tutoring. Or maybe for some of you, it's starting to serve. That maybe it's stepping into some place here on Sunday morning. Maybe it's a safe little first movement towards extending your lunchbox. In order to reopen strong, you can tell we're doing three services. We make sure we spread everyone out. But one of our goals is to return to to weekly services. But to do that, we need dozens of people to lean in for this season to help us reopen strong. Because I believe the best days of this church are in front of them. God's been doing miracles while we've been distant from each other. And I am so excited about September and all that is in store for us and all that we're moving towards. And I really believe the next six months of your life can be so much richer than the last 18 months. And for some of you, I want to challenge you. There is a place for you, whether it's in this room or the backstage or whether with kids or we're greeting, but you've got something in your lunchbox, and we'll help you find a place to use it here. But there's one other piece that I think is important as we wrap up, because it's if we're going to be people who don't just praise selflessness but practice it every day, then I think there's one thing that we all have to be reminded of that at some point in our lives we all have to confront that gets in the way of us being selfless. When I was walking this week, I came across this tree, and I noticed, I was like, man, look, it's vibrant, it's alive. Like, you know, I, I love spring because things start sprouting and springing up and to see it, and as I was walking past, I noticed this tree, and I said, wow, look at that, and then I got closer, and what I really noticed was, actually, that tree is dead. It's covered with vines, and when I got really close, I backed up because I realized what it was actually covered with was poison ivy. The entire tree was wrapped up. This tree looked like it was alive from a distance, but what it really was was dead on the inside and toxic all around it on the outside. And I stood there and I realized, man, this is such a picture of the good news of why Jesus came. Because there's only two miracles that all four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus record. The feeding of the 5,000 and his resurrection. And it's because Jesus came not to kill the fruit of our selfishness, the broken relationships, the the harsh words and the self-centered actions that we choose. He came to destroy the root of our selfishness. You know, you can't just spray this and kill it. The way you kill poison ivy is you have to kill it at its root. Because if you chop it, it grows back up. And what Jesus did on the cross was about uprooting the root of our self-centeredness, our selfishness towards each other and towards God. Theologians, the Bible calls it sin. We call it jerks. We call it our worst moments. And what it does in reality is exactly what it does to this tree. It wraps our lives up with a level of toxicity and it covers up the fact that we're dead on the inside. And that what Jesus does is he comes to bring life. 
And that no matter who you are, where you are, what you've done, that life can come to you today. The root, not the fruit of selfishness, can fall away. And I'd love to tell you more, connect with you, um, encounterchurch.com forward slash Jesus or inside of our app, you can click explore faith. We have resources. We want to help you experience not just an external selflessness, but an internal transformation that actually that flows from. And that regardless of who we are today, that what you and I can have this Mother's Day isn't just to praise selflessness, but to begin to practice it every single day in our lives.